Thanks, Jen and Dalen, for leading us in worship this morning. Good morning. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Uh, and this morning, it's my privilege to open up God's Word and lead us in our study of it together. So I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and take it out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. We are in the middle of a study of the Gospel of Matthew that we're calling Long Expected, Unexpected King, looking at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And We've recently just studied his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been finding out what happens when he comes down off the mountain. What happens as he goes back among the people, begins living life, doing ministry. Uh, last week, we saw healings. We saw miraculous events as Jesus uh, healed a leper. He healed a, a paralytic. Uh, he cast a fever out in just an instant. And we saw how this pointed us at who he is, what he came to accomplish. And this morning, we're looking at a slightly different side of Jesus' ministry, some warnings that he's going to give to a few people uh, in Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. While you're turning there, um, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever see something so cool, so amazing, that after watching it, you thought immediately, I want to do that? I want to go and do whatever it is. Maybe you saw it in a movie. Maybe you saw it on TV. Maybe it was a friend, somebody, something somebody did on vacation. You think, that, I've got to do that. I have to do it. I'm guessing probably so. It's human nature to see something amazing and decide we want to be part of that ourselves. We want to step in. We want to get involved. I've got a good example of this for you. I want you to go back in time to the summer of 1986. And in the summer and fall of 1986... The U.S. Navy saw recruiting for naval aviators go up over the previous year by 500%. 500% increase in those applying to be naval pilots than in the year before. Now, why was that? Did they come up with a really cool brochure? Maybe get, you know, a couple really, really great recruiters and, and they, they hit the trail and started bringing even more people in? Well, I'm sure they had great brochures, but no, it wasn't either of those things that caused a 500% increase in applicants. You see, in May 1986, this little movie called Top Gun came out. And millions of young people all over the country saw Tom Cruise flying around in an F-14, and they thought, oh yeah, I am going to be a pilot, right? I'm going to take the highway to the danger zone with Tom Cruise, and I'm going to join the Navy. And so they rushed to their recruiting center. The Navy was even setting up after it became apparent how big this movie was. The Navy set up recruiting centers, booths right outside of movie theaters. Get them while they're hot, right? And bring them in and have them join up and become the next uh, Iceman or Goose or Maverick or take your pick. Now that's perfectly normal, right? You know, it's, it's normal to see something and to be inspired. I think if all of us look at, you know, um, big things that we've done in our lives, maybe the job that you went into, like somebody probably inspired you to do the things that you've done in your life, to live the life that you've led. But here's the thing. Anytime you're inspired to do something, once the wow factor wears off, and it always does, no matter what we're talking about, once the wow factor wears off, it's important to know exactly what you're getting yourself into. It's important to know how you would actually do this thing you've been inspired to do. Now, so let's go back to 1986. We've got our 500% increase in recruitment. And I don't have any hard statistics to justify what I'm about to say, but I feel pretty comfortable in, in asserting this, right? We have a 500% increase in applicants to be naval aviators. I'm pretty sure 
that in the, in the year to come, there was not a 500% increase in fighter pilots in the Navy, right? Not all of these people who saw Top Gun actually became fighter pilots. Why? Because apparently flying an F-14 is kind of hard. It's not something you can just walk out of the theater, sign on the dotted line, and next week you're in the F-14. Well, Jesus had a similar effect on people during his earthly ministry, right? They see him. They hear the amazing things that he taught, the way that he taught with an authority that was unlike any religious teacher of his day. They see the amazing miracles that he performed, healings like we saw last week. They saw this guy, and he was different, and he was inspiring, and he was unlike anything they'd ever witnessed, and so they flock to follow him. He gathers crowds wherever he goes. But whereas in 1986, the naval recruiters were jumping on the bandwagon in every way they could to capitalize on these guys eager to join up in the Navy, Jesus actually has a few interesting words for his most eager followers who seem ready to sign on the dotted line and jump right in. He essentially tells some of them, not so fast. Not so fast. Have you considered what you're signing up for? So as we come to this text this morning, Right? We are a room full of people with at least some interest in following Jesus. Right? Unless someone drug you here against your will, you're here because you in some way, shape, or form think, hey, Jesus is somebody who's worth following, worth checking out, worth listening to. And so if we're going to be among the crowd, we need to listen to the words that he's going to say this morning and ask, have we ever considered this? Have we ever heard his not so fast and thought about what it's going to take to follow Jesus, and if we're ready to face these realities ourselves when we follow him. So let's take a look. Matthew 8, I'm going to read verses 18 through 22 this morning, and we will jump in and study it together. In verse 18, it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Those are Jesus' challenging words for us this morning. Let's pray, and we'll take a look at them together. Father, may we pause May we mentally, spiritually pause in this moment and sit under the weight of what your Son has spoken to us. As we hear and study these words, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us. By the power of your Spirit, to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we start our text this week with a simple statement of circumstance, right? Verse 18, nothing remarkable. It's just giving us the setup, the lay of the land. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So remember, he's finished the Sermon on the Mount. He's come into the town of Capernaum, what we saw last week, a little fishing village, about 1,500 people on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. He performs a couple remarkable healings, and then we're told in verses 16 and 17, people are coming from all over the surrounding countryside, and he's healing them all. Like, there is something going on in Capernaum as Jesus is coming through the town. But now, as this crowd has gathered around him, as he's performed all of these healings, 
he prepares his disciples, he gives them instructions to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. All right, he's leaving town, they're getting the boats ready, and they're going to set sail and head off to the other side and whatever it is that might come next. So Jesus and his closest followers climb into the boat and they prepare to depart. A couple people from the crowd are going to approach and basically ask, can we come with you? We want to come along, Jesus. We want to come to the other side. We want to be in the boat. But before, we, before they do, before we look at these two individuals, it's important to briefly point out something about this crowd, about the crowd that is gathered around Jesus and has been following him so far, and that's this. It's pretty easy to join Jesus' crowd. It's pretty easy to be a part of Jesus' crowd. These people have listened to his preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, They've watched the miraculous healings that he's performed in Capernaum. They've been gathered around waiting to see what happens next. But think about it. What did it cost these people so far? Not a whole lot, right? I mean, Jesus is not charging admission. He's not asking for donations. He hasn't required anyone to sign up and work in the kids' ministry. Like, there has been pretty much no inconvenience so far to anyone who's come around him. They basically just have to show up and watch Jesus do amazing things. That's all it really costs to be a part of the crowd at this point in time. It's kind of like being a vegetarian at a salad bar, right? Not really any difficult decisions that you've got to make. It's like being a fan of the New England Patriots. You don't know what suffering looks like. You don't know what it is to be inconvenienced. It's easy to skate right along. And I would suggest to you that following Jesus as far as being a part of Jesus' crowd is a lot the same today, right? Now, we may look at our country and, and think, man, this, this country is not Christian in any sense of the word. It certainly doesn't appear to. You turn on the news and you hear all this stuff that certainly doesn't sound like it lines up with what Jesus has to say. But according to a survey taken last year, 71% of Americans identify as Christian. If you're just going to go man on the street, are you a Christian? 71% of Americans identify themselves as part of Jesus' crowd, right? As part of the people who are listening to what he has to say. So if you claim to be a Christian this morning, you're putting yourself squarely in a comfortable cultural majority, at least in terms of self-identification. 43% of individuals in America say they attend church at least once a month either once a month or more frequently. 43% say they attend church. So by showing up at church this morning, you're putting yourself in a group that is not as big as the 71%, but it still is larger than the 28% who say they never go to church at all. So showing up at church every now and then has you in a larger group than the people who say, I never go to church at all for any reason. That to say... The crowds that gather in churches like ours all over the country this morning are not so different from the crowd that gathers around Jesus in the passage that we're reading today. It doesn't cost a lot. I mean, you had to get up on a Sunday earlier than you probably would have gotten up on a Sunday if you didn't have anything going on. But outside of that, not really inconvenienced, not really costly. It's pretty easy, even today, to be a part of Jesus's crowd. Like, we're all here because something has attracted us to him. Whether it's what he says, whether it's the things that he did, whether it's the difference that he's made in us as he's changed and transformed us, something has attracted us to him, and it really doesn't cost us anything to just show up. So as we read about this crowd, 
Put yourself in the middle of the crowd because that's where we are, right? We're not so different from these people. And because of that, when these other two come up to Jesus and he gives them words of pause, words of warning, we need to hear these words of warning, right? Because we're in the same group that they're in. If we haven't wrestled with what he says to these two guys, we need to today. So let's look, and what does he say? In verses 19 through 20, Jesus points out just showing up is not good enough. Just showing up isn't what he's after. Verse 19, who approaches him? A scribe. A scribe comes and he declares, I want to come along. A scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He wants to be as true a follower of Jesus as there possibly is. Like, Jesus, I'm all in. I am on board. Let's stop and let's think a little bit about this guy. What does it mean? What, do we, what should we know about him when Matthew describes him as a scribe? Well, scribe is an individual who helped create copies of the Old Testament scriptures. Right? It was his job to make sure that God's word to the people was preserved, was passed down, was distributed in, uh, among the synagogues. But he's more than that, right? A scribe is not just someone who did that. Scribes in this culture also performed functions that we today would associate with lawyers, that we would associate with judges, that we would associate with journalists. These guys did a lot of different things, and they were very well respected in society, right? So when we're told this guy is a scribe, he's somebody who would be noteworthy and respected in the town, religiously, socially, Politically, this guy, he's, he's A+, plus, right? He's in the in club. He would have had the relationships at the country clubs. He would have gone to all the great dinners, all the great parties. He's an insider. And he's polite, right? He addresses Jesus as teacher, acknowledging the good and the helpful things that Jesus said. He's not openly antagonistic. He's coming, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He professes complete and total devotion. I am all in, 100%, all my chips on the table. Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Basically, he's the kind of person that I can imagine Peter and the other disciples sitting back and thinking, yes, we got this guy. This is awesome. Things are really taking off now. He is exactly the kind of person that you would think we want to follow Jesus, right? He's a, he's a great catch. He's the, it'd be like a visitor showing up this morning who's noteworthy in the, in the community. Maybe it's Gustavo, the owner of Gustavo's, or somebody who in Crestwood is, is in, the, in the upper crust of society, someone who has influence. And it'd be like that visitor coming in and saying nice things to all of us and shaking everybody's hand and smiling, and then he comes up to me and Pastor Dave and Pastor Todd, and he's like, I want to join, and I'm going to be here every Sunday, and I'm going to serve in absolutely every way possible. This is the stuff that pastors dream of at night. We're like, where is that guy who's just going to walk in and like, I'm 100% in, let's go. And so we would expect Jesus to be responding to this guy like, all right, buddy, come on, you're in, get in the boat, let's go. But he doesn't. Instead, he says essentially, not so fast. Not so fast, scribe. We might expect him to be introduced as a member on the spot. Jesus actually discourages him. Like, when was the last time we discouraged somebody who wanted to come to church with us? Like, hey, have you really thought about this? So why does Jesus do this? What does Jesus say, and why does he discourage him in this way? Well, Jesus understands 
that while this man pledges total devotion, he doesn't actually understand what this pledge involves. And honestly, he doesn't even understand who he's talking to. While he might profess this, he doesn't understand what he's saying. Interesting fact right off the, the bit. I, I had never encountered this before, but in my study this week came across it. He, he calls Jesus teacher, right? He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He is the first of five people in the book of Matthew to refer to Jesus as teacher. And none of them actually end up being true committed followers. Everybody who calls Jesus teacher in the book of Matthew is either on the fence like this guy or is a Pharisee, someone openly antagonistic and trying to trap Jesus. Like, teacher, we know that you're from God and say all the right things, but should we pay taxes to Caesar? So even in the way he addresses Jesus, while it sounds nice on the outside, it expresses an inadequate understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, Pastor and scholar Craig Blomberg says the title is accurate, but it is not adequate. Jesus is a teacher, but he's much more than that. And that seems to be the piece that this guy doesn't understand. But it gives us a window into his thinking. Who does he think Jesus is, and why does he want to follow him? Now, we're we're not told the extent of his motivations. Perhaps he thinks that Jesus is the latest flavor of the month rabbi, headed for fame and influence, and he wants to attach himself to his coattails and go along for the ride. Maybe that's what he thinks. I mean, he's drawing quite a crowd. Who wouldn't want to be on the inside of that? Could be that he sees this charismatic but conventional carpenter-turned-itinerant preacher, and he's like, this guy shows tremendous promise. But you know what? He's a little rough around the edges. If he had someone like me, someone smart with influence, I could help you go really far, Jesus. He could use me on his team. Maybe it was that. The text doesn't tell us. But what we do clearly see from the text, what we do clearly see from Jesus' answer, is that in his desire to follow Jesus, he is more concerned about himself than he is with who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. Now, why why can we say that? Because look at the way Jesus answers him. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says that even wild animals have more comfort and stability than he does. Verse 20, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Number one, how does Jesus refer to himself? Son of man. Remember back when we talked or when we studied the the book of Daniel last fall, the passage that Daniel sees this vision, the son of man coming with the clouds. This was an identification of Messiah in Jewish culture. So it you know, is, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man quite often. Is his intent here to say, you call me teacher, think higher. This is who I really am. Jesus says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. I've got nothing. Jesus says, even wild animals have more comfort and stability than he does. The implication of that is, hey, you want to follow me? This is what you're signing up for. This is what comes with the territory. This is what membership in the club looks like. Why does Jesus say this? Because he realizes that the man is less concerned about Jesus than he's concerned about himself. Pastor and scholar Douglas Sean O'Donnell puts it this way. Jesus had no faith in this man's faith because he knew that at the heart of this scribe's bold declaration was self-love, not self-denial. 
a desire for power, not a willingness to be powerless without a home, esteem, possibly without a life. Right? Jesus is inner circle, the 12 disciples. You toss out Judas, who's going to be without a life for completely different reasons. The other 11, 10 of the 11 die for their faith in Jesus. Jesus saying, you want to be in the boat? You ready for this? You ready to be wandering, nowhere to lay your head? And repeatedly in talking with his disciples and talking with his followers, Jesus emphasizes that denial of self rather than comfort and power will be part and parcel of following him. You want to come with me? It's going to look more like self-denial than it does grandeur and self-adagration. I'm going to try to say the word now. It's going to look like self-denial, not puffing ourselves up, not comfort, power, influence, all of these things. A few verses where we see this, Mark 8, 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Like, we're used to hearing that verse a lot, right? If you've been in church for any length of time, take up your cross, follow Jesus. We even refer to hard things that we have to deal with in life. That's my cross to bear. I had to get up at 6.30 this morning, didn't have any coffee. You know, it's my cross to bear. Take up your cross and follow me to these people would have been shocking language. It's like, if anyone wants to be with me, if he wants to follow me, then have him deny himself, have a seat in the electric chair and follow me. That sounds strange. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's about self-denial to the point of death if you want to be in my club. Luke 9, 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Mark 9, 33 through 35, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Sidebar, I love this. Like, I, I, I want, wish I could see the look on Jesus' face. I picture they're all walking down the road. Jesus is in front. All of them are behind. And he's kind of, so what were you guys talking about on the way? And they're all kind of like, um, we didn't hear you. What was that? Did, what did you ask us? Because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You guys don't get it. You don't get it. You're arguing about who's going to sit on top. When really you should be concerned with how can you race to the bottom? How can you serve everyone around you? Now, why would Jesus keep constantly saying stuff like this? Repeating it over and over and over to his disciples, to the crowds who came and followed him, to this scribe who, who all, from all accounts, looks like exactly the guy that we want. Why would Jesus keep saying this? Well, maybe, just maybe, it's because he knows that his followers will be tempted to seek him as a means of advancing their own desires. Just maybe, hypothesis here. Because not only is that what it looks like in that culture, that temptation still exists today. To follow Jesus and wonder, what can I get out of this? How does this advance me? How does it make me look good? Jesus doesn't promise comfort to us. He doesn't promise a safe seat. He doesn't promise a seat at all. I've got nowhere to lay my head. He promises self-denial. He promises joy, but it cuts through a hard path to get there. He doesn't promise us comfort. This scribe, 
had a different expectation of what it would be like to follow Jesus, Jesus says, not so fast. Have you thought about this? Have you considered this? And so the scribe fades back into the crowd. It's interesting to point out, both these guys today, we don't know how they respond. The fact that we're not told how they respond leads one to believe they probably don't respond well. Like you would imagine if, if they still ended up following Jesus, we would have gotten that story. So we, we can't say 100% this guy didn't make it, but it doesn't look good. He fades back into the crowd. And in verse 21, another man comes and pledges his desire to follow Jesus. Just as soon as he gets some other things taken care of first. Right? Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now on the surface, this request seems perfectly understandable, right? And in fact, Jesus' response can actually sound a little bit cold and heartless when we first read it. We're like, oh. I mean, let's say you invite somebody to go do something later this week, and you're, you're talking, and you're like, hey, you know, you want to come hang out or go to a ball game or go see a movie, and they respond, yeah, I, I'd love to, but I got to go to my dad's funeral first. You'd be like, Okay, acceptable excuse, right? Not going to strong arm you here. That's all right. So why does Jesus go extreme on this guy here? Like, forget about dead dad and come follow me. Well, he goes extreme here because this guy is not actually asking to go take care of his dad's funeral. That's not what's going on. Let's think contextually, all right? If this man's father had just died, he would not even be here talking to Jesus in the first place. He wouldn't be out listening to Jesus preach. Why? Because by Jewish custom, the dead were required to be buried on the same day that they died. So if his dad had died and he was waiting for the funeral, he would be taking care of the preparations, sitting vigil with the family, making sure everything was in place. He wouldn't be following around Jesus in Capernaum listening to his teaching. He wouldn't be here making this request. And then think as well, his dad, maybe, maybe his dad is just really sick and he knows he's going to die soon. Maybe he's on death's door and, okay, as soon as dad passes, then I'll come and follow you. That's not what's going on here either. How can I say that? Again, think contextually. What had Jesus literally just finished doing in Capernaum? What do we see at the end of last week? He was there and everyone in the surrounding countryside who was sick was being brought to him and getting healed. If this guy's dad was sick and on death's door, he wouldn't be asking Jesus to wait until he dies so he can bury him. He would have been there getting healed like the night before. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, what is going on here then? Okay, if this guy's saying, first let me bury my father, well, dad's not actually dead. He's probably not even close to death. Why is this guy asking this question? Scholar R.T. France explains in a, in a helpful little summary. He says, if the father had just died, the son could hardly be out at the roadside with Jesus. His place was to be keeping vigil, preparing for the funeral. Rather, to bury one's father was standard Near Eastern idiom for fulfilling one's familial responsibilities for the remainder of the father's lifetime with no prospect of his imminent death. This, then, would be a request for indefinite po postponement of discipleship, likely to be for years rather than for days. All right? So it's a figure of speech. In the same way that if, if somebody is going out to do something and you say, hey, go break a leg, 
we understand you're not really saying, I hope you go and break your leg. Like, it's something that we say. It has a different meaning that it might immediately appear. Same deal here, where he talks about burying my father. He doesn't mean I'm literally getting ready to go and dig the grave right now. This is, I need to serve out my responsibilities at home, and then once my dad passes, then I'll come and follow you. All right? So, let's look at Jesus' response here. He says, and Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Sharp. Even if we understand, okay, we're not talking about literally his dad's getting buried this afternoon. This is still a hard thing to hear, right? Let me go and bury my father and then I'll come follow you. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. So what is Jesus saying here? Is is he coldly saying, forget your dad? Like, your dad doesn't need your help? I don't think so. Now, Jesus did say some shocking things about how our following him, how our discipleship is going to intersect with relationships with family and friends, right? Our allegiance to him goes above even our closest family ties. Luke 14, 26, the most sharp example of this, where he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Your allegiance to me has to be far beyond your love for all these other relationships that it looks like hate by comparison, right? That's radical. That's shocking to hear. But at the same time, when Jesus says that, he doesn't mean, well, those relationships mean nothing at all and you can just toss your responsibilities there. How do I know that? Because Jesus also saved some of his harshest words for people who taught that their obedience and their love for God got them out of loving their neighbors, got them out of taking care of those that God has placed in their care. Look at this in Mark 7, 9 through 13. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because the Pharisees said that serving God gave you a get-out-of-jail-free card for taking care of your ailing parents if you did it in a certain way. Jesus says to them, Mark 7, 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So the Pharisees, they said, look, it was a responsibility in that culture. You take care of your parents when they're sick, when they're old, when they're ailing. And Jesus says, or the Pharisees taught, you have to do that. That's in the law of Moses. But if you give a gift of your money to the temple, to God directly, and your parents need help, you don't have to help them because you gave it to God. And that's more important than giving to your sick and ailing parents. Jesus says, that's a load of crap, right? You're setting up a tradition that allows you to nullify what God commanded you to do in the law of Moses. Quit making up your own rules. And so when we see that, I don't get the idea that this guy has real responsibilities at home, that his dad is not doing well, he needs him, and Jesus says, yeah, forget the old man and you come follow me. Because it doesn't jive with the things that Jesus said elsewhere. No, he's concerned that he stay home and help his dad until his death. Why? What's so important about his dad's death? What happens at his dad's death? He gets the inheritance, right? He gets the cash. 
Think about the prodigal son. The prodigal son said, I want my inheritance now so I can go and spend it. This guy is not so bold as that, but he wants to have the security that his family estate will bring him. And so he says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but first let me go and, and bury my father. First let me be at a place where I'm comfortable, where I'm secure, where I'm steady, and then I'll come and follow after you. He's basically saying it's just not a good time. As soon as I check these other things off the list, then I'm all in like that guy. Like, I do want to follow you. I really do. It's not that it's not important. It's just that there's these other things that I have. He has loves and allegiances that are greater than his love and allegiance to Jesus. And because of that, Jesus calls him sharply away from it. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. You care more about the affairs of this world. There are plenty of people who can look after the affairs of this world. You come look after the things that lead to life. Follow after me. Come with me. Let those who are concerned only with the affairs of this life look after those affairs. But there's something bigger for you. Your eyes have been opened to see a glimpse of something beyond that. There will always be a hundred things that compete for your attention and your allegiance. You've got stuff from this past week You've got stuff from this coming week. You've got cares. You've got concerns. There will always be things that say, I'm the most important thing in your life. I need your attention. I need your allegiance. None of those things, Jesus says, rises above the call to discipleship. The call to follow Christ is supreme. It's the most important calling that you can receive. So what do we do with this? What do we do with these sharp words? Well, first, we need to consider where we are, right? Like we said at the outset, by showing an interest in Jesus, we all have firmly identified ourselves as in the crowd, right? We're in the group. We're listening to the words. We're seeing the amazing things. Maybe you were drugged here against your will. Maybe you're listening online because somebody said, if you don't listen to this, I'm not going to do whatever it is you want to do this week. Maybe, and if that's the case, you need to see this Jesus. You need to see that he's remarkable, that he's amazing, that he has the words of life, and you need to follow after him. You need to check him out, and we would love to help introduce you to Jesus. But most of us who are listening to this today are at least in the crowd. What we have to ask ourselves is, have we gone from the crowd to the boat? Are we going across to the other side, or are we sitting on the shore because the cost is too high? And so there are questions that we need to ask ourselves this morning. I want you to think about these questions. Write them down if you need to. File them away in your, in your phone or, or on your tablet. And when you come to group this week, let's talk about how we answer these things, how we wrestle with these questions in our lives. As people in Jesus' crowd, have you ever wrestled with the hard words that he gives these two disciples? Let the dead bury their own dead. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is what it costs. You ever wrestled with that? What are you looking to get out of following Jesus? What are you in this for? Is it just for something to do on Sunday mornings? You really like listening to sermons? You like listening to music? You like having friendships? What are you in this for? Why are you following after Jesus. Do you expect a comfortable life? 
you got some sense of like Christian karma almost, where it's like, if I do the right things, then God will bless me and things will be good. I don't want to end up living in a ditch on the side of the road, so I'm going to follow Jesus and check the boxes so that I can have the comfortable life that I want. When things are hard and painful in your life, do you automatically assume that God has abandoned you? Something must be wrong? When life is going well, do you automatically assume it's because God is pleased with you and how you're living? There are a lot of people who are doing quite well right now who have absolutely no regard for Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who are the most dedicated followers of Christ you will ever see in your life who are being murdered as we speak, who are having their homes taken, their families taken, their livelihoods taken. Jesus doesn't promise comfort. Is that what you're seeking from him? Is that your expectation? Follow Jesus, things are good. Don't follow Jesus, things are bad. In what ways are you tempted to see God as a means to promote your own influence or seek your own desires? In what way are you trying to get ahead? In what areas is God calling you to do something hard in order to be obedient to the commands of Jesus? In what, in what ways do you see something on your plate and you know that is going to lead to trouble for me? It's going to lead to hard, long days, but God wants me to do it. He wants me to, to deny myself and follow after him. Here's a big one. What are the cares and concerns of this world that most often and most intensely compete with Jesus for your allegiance? What are the cares and concerns of this world that most often and most intensely compete with Jesus for your allegiance? It's going to be different for every one of us, right? Because we're different people. We're wired differently. We have different loves, different passions, different temptations. What are the things that you most often are tempted to put above the calling to discipleship, to put above the calling to follow Christ? Guess what? They don't have to be sinful things, right? They might even be good things. But for you, they become a trap because you say, I, I really want this more than I want Christ. And so if the two come into conflict, I'm going to do what's easy. I'm going to follow my desires. Things that are good, I'm going to turn them into my functional God. What are they for you? What are your temptations? And then once you identify what those things are, how do you need to view and handle them in light of your calling to follow Christ? Let's take our guy who, at least on the outside, uses family as his thing, right? Let me go and bury my father. And let's even give him the benefit of the doubt and say it's not about the inheritance. He really did have an allegiance to his family. All of us, you know, come from families. We have relationships that are near and dear to us. But it is possible to put those things on a pedestal above God and to have our allegiance to our family and the things that we want to do with our family rise above the things that we need to do to follow Christ. The answer to that is not to just forget your family. It's not to, to say, hey, whatever benefit you would have got from me is dedicated to God now, so I'm, I'm doing the spiritual things over here. We still are called to love our neighbors. We're still called to honor our father and mother. We're called to love our spouse, our kids, our friends, all of these different things. But to do so in a way that puts Christ first. Whatever you've identified as, man, that's, that's where I trip. That's the thing. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's your job, maybe it's money, maybe it's relationships, whatever the case may be. How do you need to view it differently in light of the calling to follow Jesus? 
As you think about all these things, ultimately ask yourself the question, are you in the crowd or are you in the boat? Are you sitting on the shore wanting to follow along but knowing it's going to cost me something if I go down and climb in? Jesus is going to have hard words and I'm not quite ready to push through that yet. What is it for you that's holding you back? That's that's coming above the call to discipleship, coming above the the call to follow Christ. What do you need to do to get out of the crowd and into the boat with Christ and head on to the other side? Let's pray.